by uh, chapter 3, uh, the topic we'll be talking about this afternoon, uh, it's kind of a little bit more of a happy topic, but not so much. Uh, Malachi is talking to the children of Israel, so in his message to give the context of it, it's probably right around, either right around the time of Nehemiah or right after it, right after all that had taken place. And Israel was falling back into the sins that had just got them led away into captivity. Now we notice that Israel, and we know from history, they never went full bore back into idolatry, but there were some other sins that they went into. And as we looked about in the last, um, in, the, in our morning message, oh, spoke on you can't differentiate uh, between sins. Uh, sin is sin, and you can't uh, deal out the consequences for one sin and let another sin slide. And God, we see God did not do that with the children of Israel. He had to judge them. As a just God, and you also see a bit of His mercy in this upcoming chapter. But you open up the chapter there in chapter number uh, uh, 3. If you want to uh, put a title on this, it would be Looking Forward. Be Looking Forward. And on the first verse there, you see it says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. That right there is talking about, obviously there is a way of introduction, that's talking about John the Baptist, man who will prepare the way before the Lord. John the Baptist, the greatest man born among women that ever lived. That's who that's talking about. It says, And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Right after, uh, right after this messenger that prepares the way, we see Jesus Christ. Uh, we see him prophesied hundreds of years, centuries before he appears on the scene. That is a great proof of the truth of Scripture. They have found copies of Malachi that were recorded before Christ was even born, before B.C. So this is not something that was written afterwards. If you want to circle that verse as an apologetic verse or a verse that you can point back to, people say, oh, the Bible is assembled by a bunch of men at a council sitting in a dark room, dark, smoky, candlelit room, piecing things together and cutting out things they didn't want in there. No, no, even archaeology proves that to be wrong. The Word of God proves it wrong, which is enough, but even archaeology proves it wrong too. So we see that, and it says, But who may abide the day of His coming? Who shall stand when He appeareth? For He is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. I had to break out the the Bible dictionary on what a fuller was, but apparently a fuller is someone like a professional laundryman or a professional cleaner. I did not know that prior to uh, studying this chapter. That's what a fuller was, a fueler, or F-U-L-L-E-R-S. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The fueler's soap, think of the industrial-grade soap that is used to clean your carpets that can turn a carpet that is all stained and dirt is packed in it, can turn that thing just back to the original color that it, already, that it was before. It's a pretty powerful type of soap. It's um, recently uh, I decided I wanted to clean the carpets in the living room. And as I'm taking that solution, I'm pouring that into the machine. You look at the warning label on that. Um, apparently, it's a very deadly substance. I don't know how, it, how the plastic bottle was able to contain it. 
Because apparently this thing can eat through your skin. It can burn your eyes out. It can cause you to become asphyxiated if you swallow it. But I'm going to put this on the floor. I'm thinking, hmm, um, I better make sure I rinse this pretty good because I got a little boy who likes to crawl around and he puts anything and everything in his mouth. But that's what the fuller soap, that's what it's compared to. That's what Christ is compared to. A refiner's fire is not something that's it's not something that's always pleasant. You can definitely tell from Jesus' time on earth. He did not, at one point in time, he had many followers when he was feeding the 5,000. People flocked to him time and time again. But you see that number when Jesus starts preaching on the harsher topics, preaching on the uh, tougher subjects of what it truly means to be a disciple of him. You see that number quickly diminish. Quickly diminish down to 12 close disciples, and even of those 12 close disciples, you had three that were really close, Peter, James, and John. They were very close to our Lord and Savior. So we see it was definitely proven through history, this verse was definitely proven that Jesus, he was like that refiner's fire. He And that, that uh, fuller soap. It was His sayings were very difficult sayings, particularly when he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That was something that was very difficult for people to understand. Or it talks about, or when it talked about, um, birds have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. That was a very difficult thing for people to hear. Definitely not a life of ease that you see preached by um, many different religions of the world or many false versions of Christianity. And you see that portrayed in when John the Baptist came on the scene and Jesus talked about him. What went you out into the desert to see? A reed shaken in the wind or man clothed in soft raiment? The men that are clothed in the soft raiment, the false religions, the false, they're just people who uh, say what the king wants to hear and rubber stamp everything that he wants. Those individuals live lives of ease. A true man of God does not. A true man like John the Baptist, he wore camel skin. Who here has ever touched a camel? They are not very smooth. They are very abrasive. They are not nice creatures either. They are pretty ugly. And they stink. So, but that's what the man of God wore. The false teachers wore the soft raiment in the king's temple. Not the man of God. The man of God also, he didn't eat things that were very pleasant. Who here would be happy with a diet of bugs and wild honey? Sorry, not even I would be happy with that. <laughs> Most, not even uh, rough, tough Marines would like that diet. Of wild honey and bugs. No thanks. That's... No. But, that's what John the Baptist did. There's a definite, definite difference there. And then it talks about Jesus. It talks about possibly referring to him when he, at his second coming. In verse 3 it says, He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. God said he's going to take care of all of these problems and some future ones that he's going to deal with that he's going to talk about later on in this chapter. We may or may not get to those, but he's going to deal with them when he comes. And when Jesus came, he hit on a lot of the issues. Jesus did not get along with the Levites of the day. He did not get along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and all the other isits and isms and whatevers. He didn't buy into their thing. He solely preached the Word of God. And He was the Word of God. And like a refining fire, it's 
not always pleasant for the silver. And then talks about, and then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days and old and in the former years. Verse 5, and I will come near to you to judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, adulterers, against false swearers, against those that oppress the hirelings and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. We see Jesus, or we see, um, the immutability of God here, where he talks about all the things that they are doing wrong. And it's not a very good company to be in, because if you are, if we find ourselves guilty of any of these, we find ourselves guilty of all of them placed in the same company. No one likes that. But sorcerers, false swears, adulterers, those that oppress the hireling, oppress their employees, the crooked businessmen, the unjust judges, the unjust rulers that impoverish children and widows, and that those that deal harshly with them, God will deal harshly, but we see that God, that He changes not, in spite of all this judgment that will come down on Israel, even though we didn't have it for thousand, uh, over a thousand years, the Jews never disappeared. Many races have disappeared. You think back, I mean, I can point back to my own lineage. I don't know overly well, but as far back as I've been able to trace it has been the 18, maybe the 1700s in Denmark and England. Or Denmark and in Germany. But I don't know who my relatives were going back to Jesus' time or what the race is. And I'd venture that most here in this room don't either. However, Jews are still there. Their nation's still there because God promised they would be. That's it's a great thing. That shows... That shows the awesome mercy of God. Even though He is very just, even though He punishes those who do these these evil deeds, He doesn't destroy them. Verse 7, Even from the days of your fathers you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return to you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye say, wherein shall we return? After all those critiques of the previous chapters, you see the children of Israel in their sarcastic attitude. Where shall we return? How have we left thee? How have we abandoned you, God? How have we gone out of your ordinances? It's just a terrible, terrible, disgusting attitude to have against God. So God answers right back. Verse 8, Will a man rob God? And yet ye have robbed me. You see the sarcastic attitude of Israel again. The rebellious up rebellious attitude, but ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? Answer to that is in tithes and offerings. And Jesus and, and the Bible here speaks to the time period that's going on. It says in verse 9, Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there be, may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that sh- there shall not be room enough to receive it. 
And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, for he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightful land, saith the Lord of hosts. In that whole passage here, we see the situation that's going on. We see there's a famine in the land, where it talks about the devourer, most likely talking about locusts, plagues of locusts that would plague the fields of Israel at that time. We see... um, uh, something that happened to us in this area last year, where um, we had a false spring, we had a freeze, a lot of the fruit-bearing trees didn't bear fruit. That's the same type of situation here that is being talked about in Scripture, that Israel is going through a famine, and they see why. Because they have robbed God. And God is telling them what they need to do to get away from that. Now, I believe... Um, I don't believe there's anyone here that will necess- that will necess- that wants to rob God. That would be foolish. I don't think anybody wants to do that. And I don't think people necessarily, especially this group, would do that intentionally. But he talks about when he says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that's not, that's not talking right there about um, filling up a huge room or building a lavish church or uh, anything that you hear um, the prosperity gospel preachers preach. It's not talking about making the house of God something extravagant. What it's telling us is that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith. When it talks about there being meat in the house, it's talking about there being provisions for the Levites to do the work of God so they don't have to work in the field. Remember the context. This was happening Right, either right during or right after the time of Nehemiah. And one of the things that was happening in Nehemiah was the Levites were not able to do the work that they were supposed to be doing because people were not bringing in their tithes. That's what it's talking about, that they're being meat in the house. That means so that the people that are ministering to God's people have enough. It's not the prosperity gospel where the, the church of God has to be a lavish institute with the highest uh, point in town, the steeple has to be the highest point in town. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about so that when the, uh, the meat is brought into the house, bring all the tithes in the storehouse, and these tithes, they were not just money. Like, we're very fortunate today that, uh, well, you can say fortunate or unfortunate, rather depending on how you look at our current uh, state of uh, currency or money or whatnot, however you want to think about that. But today, um, at this church, we don't have a room for you to bring in, um, those of you that grow corn, the first fruits of your corn or the first fruits of your apples or the first fruits of anything like that. Normally, most of us work service jobs. We bring in tithe as money. So there's some little... Bits of differences there, that and how that is used is many applications, and way too I could go on way too long of a rabbit trail about what the money that's brought in the church should be used for, what should not be used for, and what's kind of in the middle there. But I won't go into that. Mainly, the basic part of it is that there may be meat in my house, so that the people that are ministering to God's people are taken care of. That's what it's talking about there. It says, When you do this, in verse 12, And all nations shall call you blessed. You shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. And then he goes back and talks about, Your words have been stout against me, 
Yet ye say, What have we spoken against thee? Here's how. You said in verse 14, this might sound like a broken record because we hit this same point last week. It says, It is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we keep his ordinance and that we walk mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Here we're going back to those that would not open the temple door for naught, those that would not uh, keep the fire in the temple, do the service they were supposed to do that was given their birthright without pay. It's going right back to that same point, going right back around to it, where that is speaking against God when you put down His service or say that serving Him is such a burden. Uh, Is serving God a burden? Yes. Is working a job a burden? Yes. We all have burdens to bear. Uh, I weary of preachers who pour mouth. I weary of it. And missionaries and anybody. And particularly students just going into Bible college who act like um act like poverty is some type of virtue or that you're you should be um praised for sentencing yourself to a life of poverty. So what if you even if you were sentencing yourself to a life of poverty, if you follow God's word, you have a rich eternity. So what's better? Everything you get in this world, you get to enjoy until you die. Everything you get in eternity, you get to throw it before our uh, king in heaven, cast all our crowns before him, and praise him. And thank him for being the wonderful and awesome and amazing God he is, that he had mercy on us when we didn't deserve it. So, So what if I have a life of poverty? Yeah, might complain every now and then, lose focus, but okay. Our words in heaven, you don't, you don't, you don't do the God's work for treasures here on earth because you're not going to get it if you're doing it right. You're not. It says, and now it says in verse fifteen, and now we call the proud happy. Yea, that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. They also contempt God. They've been stout against Him. They've spoken against Him, and that they've lifted up the proud. And they set up and put in high places of leadership, people that work wickedness. And the people that tempt God and mock at Him are delivered from the punishment of their mocking Him. They're not subject to the scorn that they ought to be. Think the comedians who can't go a single sentence without using a vulgarity. Those individuals should be turned off. Want nothing to do with them. The proud, the boastful, they act like they're happy. Okay, so what? Happiness means just that. Happiness means means happenstance, means circumstance. You're happy because of your circumstances. Woohoo! Rather have joy, knowing that what that what I'm doing matters. Don't build up people that are proud or wicked. So I have a hard time lifting up athletes. They got some good characteristics, and where they're following biblical principles, good, but where they're not, okay, it's too much. That's me personally. You can take that principle or leave it. Then they that feared the Lord, in verse 16, the Lord spake 
often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And then a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Talking there about the, not everybody in Israel, there is a remnant that is serving God, that is doing right, and God is giving them a word of encouragement here. He sees it, he remembers it, it's recorded, and they will be spared the judgment everyone else receives. It says, as a, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Sometimes, that also could be referring to the rapture. And when the world is in a terrible, terrible place, God will spare His own and the remnant. It might be. We don't, I don't know that for 100% certainty. And in studying it and studying whatever, what other fine, wise men of God have said, they, some believe that that's pointing to the rapture. And, but that is also pointing to the principle that, and the promise God makes that He'll remember your good deeds and He'll remember who fears Him and He'll remember those that thought on His name. And then in verse 18, And then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that served God and him that serveth Him not. There will be a final reckoning. And that's the warning. There will be a final reckoning. And uh, when Jesus came back, he was like the refiner's fire, the fuller's soap. A lot of things were exposed. Uh, he spoke out against the scribes and the Pharisees, and when they slaughtered our Lord and hung him on the cross, which is all part of his plan, the judgment that came up against them a couple decades later when the Romans came down and absolutely decimated the land of Judah. It all came to pass. There's a lot of hope for us to find there in God's Word there in a seemingly pretty dark passage. And with that, I'll close and say, Dear Heavenly 